Hi, I'm John. Welcome. Here's what today's sermon is about. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, other than a laugh you may have already had, take this. Because sin has left us all in a state of spiritual blindness, we need the gospel to open our eyes to see Jesus rightly and to see things that hold us back from growing in Jesus rightly. Let me say that again. Because sin has left us all in a state of spiritual blindness, we need the gospel to open our eyes to see Jesus rightly and to see rightly the things that hold us back from growing in Jesus. And here's how we're going to get it this morning. Go down a slide. There we go. Number one, we're going to look at the Pharisees in our text, blind and loving it. Then we're going to look at the disciples. They're blind, but missing it. Final, or excuse me. Third, we will look at blindness removed and sight restored. And then finally, we will look at our blindness removed and our sight restored. Let's go ahead and uh, get into the text. I know today, or excuse me, I know usually we read through all, uh, all of the verses. This is the largest chunk of verses I've ever preached on, so I'm just going to take it a section at a time. But uh, let's pick it up. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. It should be in your bulletin, but if not, feel free to join me on a phone or in your Bible. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, him being Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So in our first section here, we have the Pharisees blind and loving it. I want to try to accomplish three things to show you out of this first section of the text. Let's go ahead. There we go. First, that they are indeed blind. Let's look at why they're blind. And then let's look at Jesus' response to their blindness. We'll pick it back up in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue. Now I want to recognize um, some of your translation might say asked instead of began to argue. As I was translating this passage, looking at the context, how this is adversarial in its nature and just with the words and their various meanings, I am convinced that the best translation is began to argue. There's opposition to Jesus. This is not going to be a polite inquiry, and I'm going to convince you of that, hopefully. Go with me from there all the way to the end of verse 11, where it says, to test him, or in order to test him. This word test that the Pharisees want to do to Jesus is the same word used earlier in Mark when Satan comes to tempt Jesus or to test Jesus. This is seen in an adversarial light. So they're coming to argue, and they're coming to test him. This is oppositional. This is not polite inquiry. This is not, I'd like to learn more. No, this is adversarial. And now let's look at that phrase in the middle, seeking a sign from heaven. Um, my wife and I read through this this past week, and we got some really good laughs out of it. They're basically asking for Jesus' resume, looking at it, and then they are saying, okay, okay, everything you've done before until now doesn't matter. We need 
a sign from heaven this time. All right, let me show you why that's funny. I'm just going to back it up, and don't go with me. I'm just going to read the headings here for Mark, and we're going to look at Jesus' resume. These would be the bullet points. Uh, Tempted by Satan and wins. Okay? Heals many. Heals a man with an unclean spirit. We're not out of chapter one. Cleanses a leper. Heals a paralytic. Moving along. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He heals a man with a withered hand. Great crowds follow him. He calms a storm. It's like, you guys do that? Didn't think so. He heals a man with a demon. We're now in chapter 5. We're almost to chapter 8. He heals a woman who has been bleeding for close to a decade. He raises a little girl from the dead. He feeds 5,000. He walks... He walks on water. Okay? He heals the sick in another town. Are you you getting a feel for this resume? Like, it's pretty good, right? He heals another woman's faith, and then he heals a deaf man, and he feeds 4,000. This is where we're at in the story. And they're saying, Jesus, we need a sign from heaven. I think they've already got one. Exactly. They're saying the other miracles aren't good enough. We don't accept them. Jesus' position, if you don't accept those, why are you going to accept one more? This reminded me of, uh, this reminded me of a time when uh, I was in middle school and I tried out for the golf team, okay? World's worst at golf right here. I admit it. I own it. Never cracked 100, all right? Um, what I was trying to get out of this was not so much fame and glory, but if you made the middle school golf team, you got a day off from school, to go play golf for free, and there were good odds you were going to get a cart. And so you could drive it around. This is pre-driver's license days. I was stoked about this. Coach calls us in on the last day of tryouts. I'm one of the two last people to make it. It's me and my buddy Justin. I'm like, fist bumps, yes. Coach says, hey, uh, John, Justin, I need you guys to go play um, maybe like a playoff. I haven't decided where to fit you two in, which kind of tells you how awesome we weren't. I need you to go play. Let me know who wins, and then I'll just do the ordering like that. Okay, great. We go, we play, I win. My friend says to me, "Um, that was kind of a short hole. Let's maybe try a little bit longer hole. All right, yeah, sure. Okay, it's my friend. Don't want to rock the boat. I win again. He says, well, we didn't try the longest type hole. All right, fine, man. I win again. This goes on to where we play double-digit holes. I'm just like, whatever, I'm playing golf, I'm having a good time, I'm on the team, dad isn't here to pick me up yet, we'll keep going. I win every single time. On like the 10th or 11th time when my friend's parents shows up, he goes, all right, all right, all right, this is the one. <laughs> like this one is going to invalidate that I haven't like beaten you nine or 10 times. Do you see how that's what the Pharisees are doing? Do you see the opposition do you see the language? Do you see the spirit and their demeanor? Okay, I hope you see that these guys are spiritually blind. They don't understand Jesus. They don't get Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. Having stated that, let's look at why they're spiritually blind. You see, Jesus is a threat to their worldview and to their desires. 
These guys, the Pharisees, they're sometimes called the scribes. You might see them together as the Pharisees and the scribes. They have a vision of the kingdom of Israel where only Jews, it's only of this kingdom is only of benefit to Jews who adhere to a strict observance of their traditions and their particular interpretation of the law. And they have a strict distinction between good, clean people and those sinners. This is not the vision of Jesus. This is not the worldview of the Bible. Jesus' vision of a kingdom is one that benefits all the world. Where sinful humanity is restored, redeemed, and renewed to right relationship with God by Jesus' substitutionary and atoning death. This means Jesus is willing to hang out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the messy people. Do you see the distinction? He's willing to get his hands dirty, and so the Pharisees, as you read in every single gospel, they will always ask, why, why are you hanging out with those people, the, the smokers that don't tuck their shirts in? All right? Their worldview will not admit Jesus's, and they are so tightly wrapped around their vision of what the kingdom of God should be that when the true king comes, they're not just blind, but they won't listen to him because they're blind and they love their vision. They're blind and they're loving it. Do you see that? All right. Let's go over here, next slide. I want you to see how wrapped around this they are. They do not change. When we go to Jesus' death in Mark chapter 15, just look at this. So also the chief priests with the scribes, so the scribes, the Pharisees, mocked Jesus to one another saying, he saved others, can't save himself. Now watch this. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now. Do you see they're still demanding a proof from him? They're still putting him to the test? They haven't changed. They say, and if you do this, what are they going to do? They're going to go from blind to what? Seeing and believing. Their hearts are so wrapped around it, so they're blind and loving it. They will not change. They do not change. And this is a consistent thread throughout every single gospel. I want to take a moment and ask, how are we spiritually blind like the Pharisees? You know, it's kind of hard to peg the Pharisees because they have elements of their life where they actually kind of resemble non-Christians. They elevate man-made traditions over the Bible. As Christians, we hold on to the authority and the divine inspiration of the Bible. These guys elevate man-made, um, a man-made authority over a godly authority. So there's elements where they're not like us, but there are these elements where they are like us. They, or at least our fundamentalist brothers. They're rigid. They're very big on the rules. They have a moral agenda for the country. And part of their rules, I think this is hilarious, is regulating the festivals of the country. Who signs up to be the rules guy at a party? I mean, right? Okay. This makes me ask you, though. I want to ask of you, ask of me. Do you have any hot-button topics that you will not yield on 
If somebody were to show you from the scriptures, it's actually an incorrect position. Would you not yield to the Bible on certain topics? Let me give you an example. There's this one guy uh, when we lived in Long Beach that I got to lead to Jesus and see come to faith. We saw a change in his demeanor, uh, his perspective, his cynicism started to dissolve, his judgmental nature towards other people, Christians in particular, really kind of started to fade. Until, until he wanted to divorce his wife for another girl. And you see where this is going. So our life group, we called them community groups, spent lots of time trying to show this young man from the Bible um, that what he was doing was not only sinful, it was hurtful to his wife. Like, this is not life. This is not a good life. This is not considering other people. We showed him all the verses we could on divorce and how it may or may not apply to his situation. We talked about sexual immorality with people outside of marriage. And we especially honed in on Jesus' own words since he had just come to trust Jesus. But he still pursued the divorce. He told me, I get that those verses say that, but Jesus wasn't an, fill in your favorite cuss word that starts with an A, and he wants me to be happy. You can't be right. That, friends, is blind and loving it. Heels dug in, will not change, no matter what proofs you give me, no matter what evidence you give me, uh-uh, not going to believe it. So for us, I just want to ask, if we pull out the word divorce and substitute in other words, are you going to bristle? If we substitute the word abortion, sexual relationships, whatever that may mean to you, men's and women's roles in the home, the authority of the Bible, church authority. Do any of these topics kind of make you like prickle up a little bit? Make you bristle? Are you starting to form counter arguments to what you think my argument is, even though I haven't presented an argument? I just want to ask, if you're experiencing that, please dig into that. Please look into that. Ask for the Holy Spirit's conviction. Ask for your brothers and sisters around you, maybe in a life group to help you work through that and to see if maybe you're blind and loving it like the Pharisees in some way, shape, or form. Now, to the non-Christian, I want to ask, and I'm not going to ask you to like raise your hand or make it awkward. Uh, this, this is not, totally not like trying to win an argument or pick an unfair fight because it's kind of like, I guess, my home court if you want to pay in it in those terms. But just let me ask you a couple questions and if this kind of stirs the pot a little bit, I'd love to talk to you. We have other people here that would love to talk to you, take you out for coffee, buy a lunch, um, and, and just kind of work through this together, even if you ultimately disagree with me or us. If I could make this point, do you say to God, you know, if I just had some proof, I'd believe in Jesus and become a Christian? Well, I'd just like to ask, have you ever considered that statement assumes and is built on a belief that God has not given you proof, has not given you evidence. Let me give you an example. In God's word, he says, he's given the world around us to let us know he exists as a good creator. He's given you an innate morality 
to let you know that he's here and what he's like and that he's deeply concerned about right and wrong. And I'm happy to get into suffering and evil and all that stuff as well. He's also given you a Bible so that you can know him as more than a creator and more than a moral agent, but as a father, as a redeemer, as a savior. He's given you those things. You might say, I don't buy that. That that just doesn't work for me. I need more. Well, let me just ask you to consider this. If you hold that that's valid, and that that creation, morality, Bible, are invalid arguments that you just don't accept, and I need to give you, or God needs to give you something else, do you see how you've just invalidated what God has said? And that's doing what the Pharisees did when they invalidated Jesus' miracles and said, I need one more, I need one more, I need something else. They're kind of doing the same thing. I don't say this to, like, poke you in the chest. I don't say this to start some intellectual chess match. I just want to ask you to consider your assumptions and your presuppositions. If you're doing what the Pharisees did, and I'm guilty of this too, guys, by the way, all right? I'm not, like, over here, like, Mr. Clean then just please acknowledge that you may have been blind to what God has offered to you and that we all have our days, our moments, where we're like the Pharisees and we're blind and loving it. So now look at Jesus' response. Let's return to the text. Let's go to verse 12 and look at verse 13. What I want to show you in verse 12 is Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. This word sighed is the same root word I believe you'll find in Mark 7.34. Last week, when we saw the uh, deaf and mute man healed, Jesus was going to heal him. Jesus sighed. It was an emotional response of sorrow and brokenness over this man's state. Here, that same word is being used. Jesus sighs. This is what God is like. Feelings, emotions, personhood, personality. Jesus gets grieved over sin and blindness. He's not really the guy out there holding the sign on the street corner. He kind of tends to blow those guys up. Jesus is grieved over what has been done to the world that he helped create and rejoiced in creating. He sees that the world doesn't work right. He's grieved that his people don't acknowledge or recognize him and how much he has for them. In verse 12, you also see anger. You see frustration. He, there's like a hint of sarcasm or impatience when he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Put that together with a deep breath, like deep in the spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Do you hear the impatience? Do you hear the frustration? This is his response. And then in verse 13, he leaves. And this is kind of like a triple-decker leaving. Mark is making it very clear that there is a hard, cold cut. He could say, and he left them. He could say, he got into the boat again. Or he could say, he went to the other side. That would communicate the point. Jesus has packed his bags, left the building. Mark could go with two of the three. Mark uses all three. This is a clean cut. Drop the mic. I'm out of here. These are the effects of sin, blind and loving our blindness on our Savior. Now I want to look at the disciples. 
Go ahead. And go ahead. Uno mas, there we are. All right. The disciples, they don't get it either. It's not like a good guy, bad guy thing here in the text. No, they missed the point as well. Let me read for you. Starting in verse 14, going to verse 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having... I can't read today. Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces were there? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, as we move into the disciples, I want to break them down the same way we did with the Pharisees. Uh, I want to establish that the disciples are blind, look at why they're blind, and look at Jesus' response. Going back to verse 14, um, I just want to go 14 to 16, then we'll go 17 to 21. All right, so they forgot to bring bread in verse 14. That's just kind of like backdrop, setting the table, um, just giving you some information because it makes sense of the conversation that's about to follow. Jesus recognizes this, and he decides to take a minor issue and create a metaphor to explain a much larger, major issue, saying beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. For those of you who may not know, uh, leaven is the agent used to make dough rise into bread. You pinch a little bit off, you put it in the dough, beat it up, put it in the oven, makes the thing rise. It, it permeates and saturates the whole thing. Now what Jesus is communicating here uh, is this. Hey guys, if that, if that hardness rubs off on you, just a little bit of it, it can infect all of you. It can trickle through your hearts, and it can affect your faith. All right? We'll see the same later on about Herod. When you see Herod, just think same thing as the Pharisees. We learn later on in Luke, he's looking for a sign the same way the Pharisees are looking for a sign. <clears throat> so Jesus is making this metaphor, trying to warn them, trying to show them, hey, this can happen to you. If you have a hard heart, this could be you. You could become blind. And in fact, they are. Let's look at verse 16 again. They're like, yeah, Jesus, okay. And they go back to talking about bread. They don't talk about what he meant. They don't talk about what he said. They discuss, they discuss with one another the fact that they have no bread. They're majoring on the minor issue, not focusing on Jesus' major issue. He catches this. Verse 17, he's aware of this. It's pretty clear that they're blind. Verses 17 and 18, phrases like, do you not understand? Are you not, excuse me, are you not perceiving? Do you have a hardened heart? Are you not seeing, not hearing? All of this goes together to show that they don't get it also. 
They're spiritually blind to Jesus and who he is. Now, in verses 19 to 21, Jesus calls their attention back to the feeding. He says, guys, I think you missed something. You actually missed two things. First, you're with me. I kind of fed 9,000 people, and there were 19 baskets full of crumbs left over. You're worried about one loaf, 13 people. Can we do some math here? I don't think you're getting this. The second thing is actually the significance of those feedings. It says in Mark 6, 52, that their hearts were hardened, and they didn't understand what the loaves meant. Jesus is trying to communicate to them, hey, hey, I'm doing what a king is supposed to do to provide for his people, to be with them. I'm also doing what the Messiah is supposed to do, bringing plenty, bringing bounty, bringing blessing. In the 4,000, we believe it was mixed, Jews and Gentiles. I'm bringing in the Gentiles. These are all things that they should have recognized that the Messiah would do. They're missing it. They're in the boat, but they're missing the boat. They don't get that he's dropped major hints as to who he is. And that they shouldn't be worrying about provision. But they're blind, so they don't get it. But why are they blind? Well, when we go back to verses 14 to 16, it ex- I think 16 especially really shows us they're worried about food. They're discussing food. All right, There's this big point Jesus is making. They're worried about one loaf of bread. Their eye is on something other than Jesus. Like the Pharisees, they're focused on the wrong thing. Only the disciples' focus is much more trivial than the Pharisees. The Pharisees want their particular vision for Israel. Big thing. The disciples want a snack. A smaller thing. This isn't blind and loving as the Pharisees are. No, this is blind but missing it. They don't get it. Now I'd like to ask... How can we be blind like the disciples? What does blind but missing it look like? Well, here's me. I can be blind to Jesus, mostly in life's daily grind. How easy is it during busy seasons to drop spending time with Jesus in Bible and prayer to take care of the needs of the day? When a project isn't going well at work, How easy is it to get focused on that so we miss our sense of working for the Lord and working to glorify God and then trusting he's got this. Somehow or another, it's going to work out for my good. How many of you might live like this? This is what your mornings are like. Get up as late as possible before you absolutely have to so you can still be there on time. Getting up as early as possible to get a head start on emails getting the kids out the door with a boy at least wearing underwear and preferably shoes, and the girl not wearing half of her wardrobe. That's Team Rogers. Is lunch for you for getting caught up with people or getting caught up on work? Is it for meeting people? Are evenings a time to crash and just catch your breath and nothing else? Is it time to catch up on work or yard work? Is it time okay, Roger's household, to keep the kids from putting plastic bags over their six-month-old baby brother's head? Is it time to get some kind of me time, to hone my hobby, to go out, whatever it might, your personal time might look like? 
It's a time to get some time with a significant other. I want you to hear I'm not condemning these things, not at all. They're good things. I like a lot of these things on this list. But we think we've all had those moments where pursuing Jesus takes a back seat to these things. We get focused. We only see that which is in front of us. And we become blind and miss it with respect to Jesus. For me, I get spiritually blinded. My attitude drops. My irritability goes up. Any thought of glorifying God with my day decreases, let alone trying to find a way to tell somebody else about Jesus. Do you see how this kind of blindness can erode us just as much as the Pharisees? It separates us from God and creates a breach in the relationship. Let's look at Jesus' response to blind but missing it. In verse 17, Notice when he talks to his disciples, he doesn't have that deep sigh that he had with the Pharisees. Do you remember that, the deep sigh in his spirit? It's not there now. The frustration and the grief is not there, or not as sharp. In verse 17 and 21, he doesn't say, do you not understand? He says, do you not yet understand? Do you catch the nuance and the subtlety there? The implication is that he trusts that they will get there. It's just not now. Finally, he doesn't kick them out of the boat. He could have done that. They're with him. He's for them. Even in their not getting it, even in their blindness but missing it, he's got them. And finally, most importantly, he has them with him for the next miracle, which seals the deal on opening the disciples' eyes. Let's go to point number three. Blindness removed and sight restored. Let's read verses 22 through 26 together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? This is kind of comical. He looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees as they walk. I wanted to put like a Lord of the Rings with those little tree guys walking around, or the big tree guys. Um, Then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again, opened the man's eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even enter the village. Now this passage right here is unique for three reasons. This is the only time this particular story appears in the Gospels. A lot of the stories get told again and again. You can find the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels. Usually you can find them in two or three. This is the only time this occurs. And what's more, it actually kind of interrupts the narrative trajectory of the characters. The disciples aren't mentioned in this text. We've gone from blind and loving it to blind but missing it. As sight is restored, you kind of think it's the disciples who are going to have their sight restored. That's not what happens. And in fact, Matthew does not include this story in his text. He just goes straight through them in that order. Further, so what's going on here? Further, Mark adds a really interesting twist. I find this stuff interesting. If what I'm about to tell you bores you to tears, tell me, and I won't do this in preaching anymore. Mark narrates in the past tense. Everything happened. They did something. They said something. 
It's past tense. Verse 22, it happened in the past, but he tells it in the present tense. That means nothing to us, really. But in the Greek-speaking world, that was seen as good storytelling and a way to enhance the vivid quality of what's going on there. Essentially, what was happening by taking a past event and telling it present tense, you're telling it like you're there. So it's trying to draw you in deeper. That's what Mark is doing. So he's the only one to include this. He has this weird narrative twist going on. He's trying to draw our attention to this passage. And then finally, this is the only time in the Gospels where it looks like Jesus misfires and has to redo. Hey, can you see? No. Wait, what? I'm Jesus. No, that's not what's going on. Watch what happens. This healing is actually symbolic. Let me prove it to you. Let's go down. As we look at, let me read verses 27 through 30 real quick. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Finally, they get it, their sight. And let me show you how these two passages, Mark kind of splices them together, does this really cool narrative thing that explains why this other passage is there. That was a lot of pronouns. All right, if you look at verse 22 and verse 27, we'll step over here. If you look at A, there's a physically blind guy with Jesus in a city. If you look at A prime in verse 27, so he's, we're putting these two together, we're kind of chopping them up and aligning them together. Jesus went on with his spiritually blind disciples to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Let's go. All right. Then we see partial physical sight. Hey, do you see anything? I see people walking around. They kind of look like trees. What are they called? Ents, I think. Ent moots. All right. At any rate, there's partial physical sight. We'll call that B. Well, when you read the rest of verse 27 and 28 and put them together, look what happens. Who do people say that I am? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, all prophets. That's a partially correct answer. Jesus is a prophet. He's the best prophet. He's the lead prophet, excuse me, the prophet of prophets. So people have partial spiritual sight. Do you see the pattern? Is this working, not working? Let me know afterwards, okay, because I geek out on this stuff. All right, let's go down again. All right, then there's full physical sight. The guy sees. The blind man sees. Is that my son? What's up, buddy? All right. Then down in verse 29, the disciples get full spiritual sight. Do you see how this ABC pattern kind of flows through these two texts? Now watch D. A prohibition. Don't go into the village in the upper passage and the lower passage. Don't tell anybody. Do you see how this weaves together and how Mark is showing you something? He's calling your attention to this. There's a miracle that's taken place to restore the physical sight, but there's a parallel miracle that has taken place to restore the disciples' spiritual sight. Peter can say, you're the Christ. By the way, when he says you're the Christ in verse 29, guess where the last time we saw the word Christ was? It's a trick question. We didn't. It was in chapter 1, verse 1. We started this sermon series in chapter 5. Not since the extreme beginning of the gospel when Mark is narrating, communicating to you and me, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
do we see Jesus called the Christ? This is the climax. This is the unveiling. This is going from blindness to sight. I see you, Jesus. You are the Christ. Do you get that? They see him. The blindness is going away. I love that guy. Yeah. That's my boy, future preacher. All right, so Mark did this on purpose. He's a good storyteller. And his point is that the disciples themselves have undergone a miracle. They can now see spiritually as well. This left me with a question, though. We see Jesus putting the hands, doing the spit on the blind man, right? What was their miracle? We see that they can see, but how did it happen? Watch this, watch this. Isaiah 32. All right, I want to start down in verses 5 and 6. All right? The eyes of the blind shall be opened. All right, this is a messianic prophecy. Every Jew in the first century would have understood, yeah, Messiah, he's got to do all this stuff. All right, what is it there? Eyes of the blind shall be opened. Ears of the deaf unstopped. Last week, we heard about a deaf man being healed. The lame man shall leap like a deer. I think we've had two paralytics healed. All right? The tongue of the mute sing for joy. The guy who was deaf was also mute. Can you see the disciples at, at this blind man? This is the first time a blind person's been healed. Can you see them going, blind, deaf, lame, Messiah? Oh, 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 Messiah. Do you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't. Why didn't you tell me? Oh, you didn't get either? Okay. This is what's going on. Verse 2, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, as he heals people. They're seeing this. Their eyes are being opened. Do you see the word see? The glory of the Lord opens their eyes as they see these things, this punch list being checked off, as Jesus is saying with his actions, that's me. And their mind would go to this passage, and they would see, oh my gosh, behold our God. He's come with vengeance, with the recompense. Don't worry about that word. He will come, and he will save you. Our Messiah, God's special agent, our king, is here. I'm one of his disciples. Whoa. Got to ride home to mom. <clears throat> I lost my spot. All right. This is amazing. This is incredibly amazing. But it's just the halfway point of the gospel. Not the halfway point of the sermon, halfway point of the gospel. Let's go on to point four, our blindness removed. It's really tempting to think of this climax, as incredible as it is, and just go, okay, that's all. Let's call it a day. Communion, bread, wine, anyone? If God does this for me, he'll do it for you. Or if he did it for his disciples, he'll do it for you. But that's not the end of the story. There's still a problem. You see, the disciples, they might have a fully restored sight, but it's not complete yet, okay? We're going to learn next week, Peter really duffs it. We're going to learn in two weeks, they don't understand what the resurrection is. Their sight is restored, but it's like they're learning how to use it or, or dial it in. That's one problem. The second problem is, what about the period in their life where they were blind? They were not living in God's ways. That hasn't been atoned for or accounted for yet. It's a problem they have. If we're honest, it's a problem we've got too. We've lived in blindness. 
They've lived in blindness. It's not resolved just by the eyes being opened. The blindness has led to a breach in relationship with God as we and they focus on other things, as you and I and they put our gaze on other things, as we see other things and pursue those other things. Sometimes we did this like the Pharisees, blind and loving it. Sometimes we did it like the disciples, blind but missing it. Either way, there's still a tension. There's still a problem. What do we do? What's the resolution? We turn to the one who became blind for us. You see, Jesus reenacts the miracle with a physically blind man. Let me show you. Let's go to Mark 14. Again, this is Jesus' trial. All right, before we read this, remember, there was spit on the eyes of a blind man, and then there were hands on the eyes of the blind man. Watch this. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? By the way, after Peter says, you are the Christ, this is the very next time that word pops up associated with Jesus around other people. It happens like once or twice, just amongst the disciples, but this is the first time outside of their crew that this happens. There's a clear parallel. There's a clear connection in the two circumstances. You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And all condemned him as deserving death. Okay. Some began to spit where? On his face. Remember the blind man with the spit in the eyes? They strike him. They cover his face. Do you see a reversion, a retrograde of the miracle that Jesus did for this man who needed a partial healing? Jesus takes on and becomes blind for us. He enters into our blindness that it might be lifted off of us. Do you remember Jesus' displeasure at the Pharisees and the disciples' blindness? The Lord is displeased with us, if I can just be honest, with leading blind lives. We've turned to other things. But guess what? This isn't just about, oh, you're a sinner, oh, you're a sinner, oh, you're a sinner. It's look what he's done for us in the midst of our blindness. God became a man. And he became a man who became blind and beaten and spit upon to take away our blindness. This is a symbol of his absorbing God's wrath that we deserved. And this lifts our blindness. But there's more. He doesn't just remove our blindness. He gives us sight. Let's go down. Mark 15, 37 through 9. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. This is him hanging on the cross. He breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood facing him, what? Saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last. His spiritual eyes are open and he can say, Messiah, he's the son of God. Do you see Jesus taking on our blindness and opening our eyes and giving us sight? Whereas we have lived in blindness he has undone that. He has reversed the effects. That's the gospel. That's one aspect of the gospel in our lives. 
And what opens the centurion's spiritual eyes so he can see? It's seeing the way Jesus died. In fact, in that sentence, seeing is the very first word in the Greek. Mark's making a point there. Jesus is becoming blind and enduring the cross for you not only takes away your blindness, but it gives you sight. This is the goodness of Jesus, Harbor City Church. This is your Savior. Do you see him? Once you see him, know that you can keep living, returning to this again and again and again. If you catch yourself in blindness, guess what? You've got a Savior who already took away your blindness. If you catch yourself not seeing, he's already given you sight. That can't be held against you anymore. Is that good news? Know that you don't have to return to blindness. You've got something better to gaze on. The glory of who he is and what he's done for you.